1: Hello, everybody. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show, and Victor is the namesake of the show. He is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He is available on his website at victorhanson.com. That website's called The Blade of Perseus. You can join for $5 a month or $50 a month or just get a free subscription and you'll get on our mailing list for the new things that are on the website, which there are a lot of things that do not require a subscription. So please come join us. Victor, we have a lot on our agenda today. We're going to look a little bit at interviews going on by the House Committee and just by other places from Christopher Ray and Merrick Garland. But let's take a moment for some messages and come right back. we're back victor i know i usually ask you how you're doing but i noticed something that they're talking about there's snow at on march 1st 2nd on the hollywood sign and i know that you have a mountain home that's two story but i i hear that it's been turned to an igloo just about and i was wondering if you had a thought or two on that
2: well you know i went up there after the big early storms in December, and we dug and dug, and it was okay. And I thought, it'll be like last year, a good December, and then we'll be in the so-called climate change drought. But then it really snowed in a historic fashion in January. And I hired a guy up there with his assistants who did a great job, and they took like six or seven feet off the roof. I was worried that even though it's an engineered roof, I thought it might... And they had to put it down, and then, they, and then they took it away from the house. Then the next one hit, and I went back up there with my wife, and we cleaned everything out. And we thought, well, it's going to be warm, and this is kind of an overreaction. And then my daughter and her family went up, and it snowed again. And then they had to repeat the process. So then... It was basically tolerable, and then this latest one was more snow than all of the other ones put together. And the road up to Huntington Lake has been completely blocked. You can't get up there, and I think there's ten feet on the roof. Wow. And I'm told from people who are up there that the the snow is touching the edge of the roof. And I hope the house is still there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but, um, wow.
2: It's it's it depends. A lot of it depends on the type of snow, you know. If it's full of water and has a high water content, Sierra cement, it's very heavy. If it's a light, it's not as heavy.
1: Well, it's but been very cold, a, so yeah, I expected of, it's probably really light because the cold will make it very, very light snow. So yeah, I and I was, uh,
2: something told me, even though the roof was, I had built the house in 2016 and the roof was only, you know, 2006, excuse me, it was only about 16 years old and i thought well i could probably but during that fire up there it loosened some of the signals this the sheer heat and yeah. so um i you know i didn't know what to do and i just bit the bullet and then put a whole new roof with a fiberglass pad underneath it a, a presidential h or whatever it is hd heavy duty roof and i'm glad i did now and i hope that that yeah. will um We'll do
1: it. Yeah. Hey, did you see the second husband? I'm not sure what he's called. I know he's Kamala's husband. I don't even know his name. But nonetheless, he was giving a little talk or excursus on the problem of toxic masculinity. And I thought that was rather... Um, interesting. I, I don't see how the left doesn't see that as that's just an opinion. Number one, and what somebody sees as toxic might be to other people just fine, right? So I was just curious if you had any thoughts on
2: Mr. yeah, I toxic. did, and I've heard him. He's I think his name is Emhoff. He yeah, I think it's his second marriage, and I think that they were trying to bait him, or because t- Tucker Carlson talks a lot about. the antithesis of toxic masculinity, and that is no masculinity. But (laughs) the problem with all this, and I think everybody knows instantly what I'm talking about. There is toxic masculinity. You know what it is? It's Murdoch killing uh, his wife and child and with a gun and acting, you know, as if he can do anything he wants. It's two teenage boys, um, Beating to a pulp a young defenseless girl. It's a doctor riding a bicycle down the PCH in California and being run over, knocked off his bike, and executed. That's toxic masculinity, and it's criminal masculinity. But it's not masculinity. And so this idea that we're suffering from toxic masculinity, we're taught we're suffering from toxic femininity masculinity dash. I mean, think about it. We have a whole generation of young men who have failed to launch. They're living at home or they're living with friends, but they're not going out and getting married and having children and buying a home and getting established. We have a prolonged adolescent problem. We have seen the most radical drop in fertility in the United States since the Great Depression. We went from 2.1 in 1999, we're down to about 1.6. And that's because primarily young men are not marrying and having children. They don't want to take on that masculine responsibility. So for this guy just, you know, Emhoff just to say, oh, toxic masculinity. Well, we need a little bit more masculinity to make these people, you know, man up to the responsibilities as providers and protectors of a family. They're not doing that. And yet, here's a guy who's a multimillionaire, and he's a very privileged person. He can talk toss this off and toss that off because it thinks it sound it sounds great. But I think everybody knows that we don't have a uh, masculinity. So when somebody is on a bus, I shouldn't say somebody. I, a, a tiny little girl has been beaten up, and there is an attendant or a driver. There's no masculinity there. Or when a little boy is being choked to death, almost choked to death. There's no masculinity there. Or when this guy slowly loads and tries to load a gun, and they're all watching it and they're filming it, and nobody—I mean, I don't blame them. They're gone, but but nobody's runs over there and tackles him before he can load his gun. So we don't have a masculinity or chivalry, I should say, in the old sense. I think it's really important that a lot of this passive-aggressive culture uh, derives from that. You know, a lot of women say, well, we're vulnerable in the workplace from toxic masculinity. No, you're vulnerable because you have a lack of masculinity in your midst. And what do I mean by that? you're at the water cooler and somebody walks by and said, hey, babe, and snaps your bra strap. There's no man that says, what the hell are you doing? Don't do that. It's none of your business what she wants. Don't do that. In other words, they don't step up. And I think a lot of people who are listening to this are in my generation. I'm 69 and they were taught that, to do that. I know that I had a mother who was kind of a trailblazer. She was Uh, had been a very attractive woman in college. She married my dad. She had a bachelor, two bachelor's degrees and and a JD in the, in the forties from Stanford. And she, she raised her family and then she returned to work in her forties. And she was the only woman in, um, a court that was all men. And if she came home and was bright in the face one day and said to all of us, uh, This lawyer kind of cornered me and pushed me. I didn't know what to do. There was like a nanosecond. My dad was in the car and zoom. He looked like he was launching a rocket, driving the 30 miles up. What the hell are you doing? You don't ever do that again. That's what men used to do. You know, I know that there were men that were too casual and sexist and all that. But there were also men who didn't like that. And they protected the women and their family. I know women listening to this will say... How chauvinistic. We don't need protection. Well, maybe I think it would be great if you're all, you know, kickbox artist, or, you know, boxers or jojitsu or k- karate experts. But for those who are not, it might be a little bit more conducive uh, to the general tranquility if men would step up when they yeah. see other men acting violently or, or misbehaving. And uh, and that's what I think I didn't understand. The problem in this country, in other words, is not toxic masculinity. It's the lack of any masculinity. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm really worried about, because I think everybody listening has members of their family, children, cousins, nephews, nieces, brothers, whatever, that you're worried that they're not going out and having their 2.1 children. Or they're not on their way to adulthood in their mid-20s and they're in suspended animation they're ossified they're calcified yeah. and that's not a very masculine thing to do and yet whether it's video games or surfing the net or porn i don't know what it is but they are spending a, a too many men in america young men are spending a lot of time part of it is the sexual revolution where they're ha- they don't have to make any effort or to be civil or to date a woman. In other words, it's just you hook up It's almost if you're a tribe. You don't go on a date. You don't say, Hello, I'm John Smith. Hmm, Emily Jones, I would like to take you to dinner and to a movie. They don't do that anymore. It's very easy. Hey, man, what are you doing? Come on and by sometime. If you want, I don't care, but if I'm playing video games. I'm going to come over. And then you know what? And then they come over. Hey, let's have sex. Why not? That's the problem. That's not very masculine. No. It's what I'm trying no. to get at.
1: Yes. Yeah. So uh, we see it on both sides. Well, maybe we should turn to the house is investigating both the China or sorry, COVID virus. And of course, uh, Merrick Garland is there for all of the various arrests that are made that don't seem to be the equal application of justice. And I was wondering what your thoughts were first. Christopher Ray out talking to. Brett Baer of Fox News about part of the interview, I'm sure it was much longer than this, was on the Chinese lab and the possibility of the leak from the lab and that China and he even said as well that China was trying to thwart the investigation, the international investigation of this. Well, so I, I feel I feel like he's trying to get out there in front of what the House Committee is doing. And then also your reflections on Merrick Garland, and in which or whatever order you'd like.
2: Well, I mean, John Stewart was made fun of by his own leftist compatriots. Steven, that idiot Stephen Colbert made fun of him because he just said, hey, man, there's a, something called the Wuhan Virology Lab, and then there's a <laughs> Wuhan virus, and they're right next to each other. And so, this is what we knew pretty much, I don't know, within the first three months, that A, the Wuhan Virology Lab was engaged in gain-of-function research, and partially it funded from Anthony Fauci by rerouting those dollars at Uh, to Echo Health. It was illegal in the United States. That's why we wanted to use the lab. And we we weren't the primary, obviously, benefactor. Number two, it was controlled by the People's Liberation Army. Number three, there was no case whatsoever. Not one animal before humans came down with it. Number four, a lot of people, Stephen Quay was on this broadcast, have looked at the genetic sequencing and said, that doesn't happen very often. It's almost impossible in nature. Number five, why were people, Why was the Chinese government so paranoid about it? Why didn't they just come clean if it was just, you know what I mean? And a bat, it's not their fault if a bat jumped, you know. Yeah. Why, and why did Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins and everybody and Peter Daszak get so worried about trashing everybody who thought this? Why the paranoia? Why, and why did the left adopt this as sort of... You know, if you deviate from the orthodoxy, you're a conspiracy th- and we are a racist and all that. So, there everybody knew it came from the lab, but you couldn't say it. And people who said it, like Tom Cotton, remember he wrote a New York Times op-ed piece and the newsroom went crazy. And that led to indirectly to the firing of the editor, James Bennett, because wow. he allowed it to, to happen. Allowed it, he should have, you know, but yeah. it was... It, it just was crazy, and that shows you that the power of trillions of dollars floating in the global marketplace from China, 340,000 Chinese students, Chinese faculty at all the universities, all the universities price gouging Chinese students to make up for their incompetent budgeting, and were so deeply compromised by China that... Uh, it's almost impossible to criticize them. And then you had Donald Trump, and he deliberately took them on. And, he, you know, call it the Wuhan, and the way he said China, you know, China, China. And fine, mm-hmm. but they hate Trump so much that they thought, ah, Trump thinks it's from the lab, therefore it's racist to say it's from the lab. But we all knew it was. So Christopher Ray and the FBI and... Department of Energy have now basically said what everybody else knew. And of course, the left went nuts and said, this is racist. And how dare Christopher Ray? That was the only thing, if I could just take a breath, that he said in that interview that was acceptable. I mean, they ask him so many questions. Hey, when somebody is protesting at a, pro- at a Abortion clinic and a person sort of insults and threatens his son and he pushes the person back and then you send a SWAT team basically to his home and you don't do anything, anything about all of these much more frequent attacks on pro-life shelters, but you send SWAT teams after a married guy with kids at his home and frighten his family and you go to marlago and you doctor the floor with this sloppy uh, photo op you put files down as if trump had thrown them down there and you go full swat when you go into marlago and then with biden you sort of what you sort of say hey the lawyers found some okay you guys run your own investigation investigate yourself that's what we do at the fbi oh by the way oh you want to keep it quiet before they admit yeah that's fine too and then they call him. Hey, you know, we got we found another one. Okay, you investigate that too. Until finally, the outcry was so much, and then he tried to pass that off as symmetrical, is what I'm saying. Is that is yeah. the same as our how we treat abortion clinics versus uh, pro life shelters, or how we treat Trump and on and on and on. I mean, it was just it was absurd the way that he couldn't answer the questions. And then the worst was, and this was both Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland, if I could shift gears, but also Ray. So you have all these mobs uh massing at the homes of conservative Supreme Court justices. In the case of Kavanaugh, they ran him out of a restaurant and they're threatening him. To, and that is a felony. You... You cannot go to a justice's private home and scream and yell about an impending case with the purpose of trying to influence their decision. And what did they answer? Why Why weren't they indicted or arrested? And what did Merrick Garland say? Well, there was federal marshals there. I'm thinking, oh, so you commit a crime and because marshals show up that prevent you from ex accelerating and going escalating to the next level of criminality, you get a blanket exemption from the crime. So Hmm. I guess I go downtown, I take a rock, I throw it through the window and break the law. And then I'm ready to hit another one. And then all of a sudden I see there's police in there. So I refrain from breaking another window. And that refraining on my part means I'm never charged with the original offense. And of we were course. supposed to, we were supposed to listen to that with a straight face. And then the worst thing was <laughs> they asked him about the asymmetry between pro-life and abortion, uh, violence against these different respective groups. And he said it had something to do with it, with nature. Can you he says, well, uh, they attack the pro-life at night and they apra- attack the abortion, uh, <laughs> during the day so we can get them at day. And I thought, do you have any data that supports that? Are you saying that right-wing violent people have more guts to do it opening enough people just do it stealthy at night? Is that your point? Or is at five o'clock, does the FBI go home? So you never have any, or do criminals go home? So you're trying to tell me that all the criminals in the United States either don't commit crimes at night or you can't do anything about it. So you just say, "Well, he murdered a guy at two in the morning, and I can't do anything about it." If he'd done it at two in the afternoon, it'd been a different case. I mean, that was so absurd. Yes. And they, Again, I've used that phrase so often, but they think we're stupid. And for him to sit there and try to, and then the Virginia parents, you know, there's there was terrorist threats. It was just a joke. He's mm-hmm. and you know, if I could just make a slight deviation. This was a bad week. the mad president i mean he's a lot crazier than george the third uh, biden is i mean think about it this week we had his doj telling us that whether it's night, light or dark he'll go after a particular violent offender or trying to tell us with a straight face that if you commit a crime but you don't commit another crime because there's an officer there then you're not going to be indicted or Christopher Ray trying to tell us that the FBI does not use inordinate force, or he doesn't want to talk about hiring Twitter out as an FBI contractor to suppress information. Like we've gone through all the other stuff. And as I said on Fox the other night, is there anything the FBI will not do? I don't know anything. Wipe away data on phones doctor court evidence, pay Christopher Steele a million bucks if he can find one true thing. And then when he can't, you still use his dossier to go after your political appointments, et cetera, et cetera. So this was a bad week for the mad president. So then you had Pete Buttigieg. So yeah, his DOJ guy and his FBI guy. Then you had Pete Buttigieg. And he said he was going to be remembered for what, eternity? Because of his climate change advocacy. So I'm thinking, that's it. You're afraid to go to East Palestine for two weeks, and the ports are supply chain madness. They're ossified, their ships out to the horizon. We had a huge labor railroad problem. There was uh, five near misses uh, with aircraft, and one, one of them was a hit in the LAX. And then we had the entire air grid shut down over the holidays, or computer glitch. And then Southwest Airline. and this is just—and you, 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 Mr. Buttigieg, are either a on maternity leave, b on a private jet junket at our expense somewhere, or c saying that this happens all the time. There's a thousand a year. Big deal. You ignore it. Or d Trump did it. Trump did it. The the, the (laughs) wheel bearing went out because Trump deregulated the brakes. And the wheel bearing, I guess, are the same as the brakes on a rail car. And then after all of that, he says he's going to go down in history for his climate change advocacy. And even if he did, I want to know what it was. Can he show a little chart and said, Department of Transportation taken over by Pete Buttigieg, January 22nd, 2021. Look at carbon emissions. They went down. What has he done? (laughs) And so you had him, then you had Mallorca's mouthing off about the border is secure, why they were testifying that 100,000 people died a year from these cartels, assembly factories that are designed to export death to us in league with the Chinese that are supplying them the raw product. So Garland, Buttigieg, Mallorca's Ray, that's the mad president's team. And then what about the mad president? And one week. Just take an, an average week of our president. What did he do? Bef- besides the slurring and the incoherence, he said three things that I remember. Maybe you do too, Sammy. He said, huh, a thousand, a hundred thousand, and Marjorie Taylor Green blames me. <laughs> Trump did it. <laughs> I mean, he was laughing at the deaths of a hundred thousand people. And mm. he blamed him on that the, the rate was more under Trump. It wasn't. It was much less. Three year and his four years than biden's two and yet he was laughing at yeah item number two so if you think then he said as he was pandering to his black history month crowd even though i'm a white boy i'm not stupid okay so you're saying that all white people are stupid but even though you're you belong to the stupid class of white people you're not one of them because you're not stupid is that what he was saying? That all whites are stupid, but even though I'm, I belong to the stupid white class, I am so exceptional, I should be given, what, an exemption? That was just horrible, <laughs> man. That was just crazy. It is. It, that it whole was. speech was crazy, yeah. And then we get to the piece de resistance. What was that? He went into the full corn pop fashion again. And remember, anytime he goes off the teleprompter, Joe Biden is in danger of going into cornpop territory. These are kind of Homeric type scenes where he he repeats a story and he kind of changes the detail like he's a Homeric blind bard doing it from memory. And they're completely <laughs> irrelevant, but they do these vignettes uh, and his actions when he's off the teleprompter have something in common. A, he either will physically blow into the ear or the hair of a young girl. B, when he's done or he's coming up to his talk, he will hug too long a mature woman. C, he will call out some young teen in the audience, you have pretty eyes, look at her, and try to embarrass her. Or D, D he will tell a creepy, eerie, weird story that's semi-pornographic. And this category was D this week. So to top Joe. off, yeah. So he says, <laughs> well, you know, uh, healthcare care, nur- nurses are just great. Now, you know, when I was flat on my back from brain surgery, this nurse, and he named her name. I don't know what, that was really embarrassing. She was so good. It was a human connection. And I was laying down and she bent over me and blew, blew her breath on me and then blew in my ear. And that's a human connection. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. any male <laughs> was laying flat on his back. If a woman bends over him and then blows hot air into his ear, I think that is a connection. And then I thought, I have heard this before. Uh-oh. And so I went back and I, and I didn't realize that the media was doing it at the same time. But I didn't read it in the media. I just... I just I just Googled hot breath, Joe Biden blow. And he told it before But it was Homeric, it was different. And the earlier one, she blew into his nostril. Well, oh, that. that's a human connection. I can say that I'm 69 years old and nobody has ever blown into my nostril. Has anybody blown into your nostril, (laughs) Sam?
1: No, nobody's ever blown into my nostril. No, I don't think
2: you... Yeah, I mean, the only thing I've ever done with my nose is use the neti pot. But My God, blown into his nose. That was the earlier version. I don't know which is which. And uh, I don't know what he was doing there when he was channeling Genesis, you know, in the Bible when God says he blew... I think he said he blew into the nostrils of mankind life. Maybe that's what oh, he was doing. Maybe but we're, we're, this was into corn pop territory. Remember in corn pop territory, he looked in. A, he looked for a minute when he on the campaign trail. His eyes have that kind of corkscrew that go around and around like cartoon eyes. Yes, and he exactly. looks like he's nuts, and he think and <laughs> a thought goes into his brain that says, "Joe, don't do it. Do not do it. If you start lying and telling your stupid fables, you're going to embarrass yourself." And ah, you oh, I have to do it. I have to do it. I got to act like a He-Man tough guy. So he went into Corn Pop. And then at one point he said, and i get along with everybody. In fact, when I was lifeguard, I was tan, man. And my golden hairs were there. And those inner city black kids like never seen golden hairs like that. I I used to let them touch them.
1: <laughs> he didn't. Did he do this in this recent? He didn't do No, it but it was the same he, type same of thing. genre.
2: Yeah. So this man is telling us that inner city kids touch his little hairs on his leg and nurses breathe into his nostrils or his ear. And and it, it's creepy. It, yeah. It, something's sick. And that's the same week that he laughed about opiate overdoses. And he,
1: oh, no, you know, yeah. that he
2: he chuckled about it. It's bad. And uh, it's these things just keep going on. It's he's he's mad.
1: Yeah You're telling You're telling Joe Biden stories Can I just insert one Because when he Finished that State of the Union Address Nobody noticed this But he went up To that Hawaii uh, I think she's A representative Hirono Hirono yeah. And he did The old Put both hands Women must
2: be believed
1: Exactly He put both hands On the top of her head And started the Caress down her hair On both sides And she like Grabbed his hands When they got Near her shoulder and like pushed him away, like not this puppy, you hair breathing
2: yeah, no, nut, porcus, not this pig. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so that was all in one week. These creepy, you know, I mean, what, what? I mean, they made fun of Trump all the time when he said things like Haiti is an shit hole, but that was off the record, yeah. and that was leaked, and it was true. It is. But yeah. what if Trump had said? Hey, I may be a white boy, but I ain't stupid. Or <laughs> Obama killed more people than I did. <laughs> or oh he said, God. you know, when I, when I had, was in the hospital, a woman had been over. So when he said he grabbed women, that was off the record to that Billy Bush was an obscene thing to say. But he was a private citizen 10 years earlier. And they, and they went nuts about that. But this president can say things like, hey, junkie, or you ain't black. Or, hey, boy, the only good thing about uh, when he said, I may be white, I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid, was he actually referred to himself as boy, that Mm -hmm. racial derogatory epithet. Usually, he calls black people boy. Remember, he said to the, I think his name was Cedric Raymond, the aide down in Louisiana, he was down there. He said, hey, I got a boy down here working on it. And then the governor of the newly elected black governor of Maryland. He said, hey, I, this boy is a this boy is something, you know? Yeah. This is just incredible that this guy is a completely incoherent, not in control of his cognitive facilities, an abject racist, an abject sexist, and the left gives him a complete pass because they find that his senality is useful. They say mm-hmm. to themselves, man, this guy is embarrassing. And he kind of embarrasses because he's a racist. We know he's a racist. And, you know, we know he's a sexist. And we know he's a crook. But he's our racist. He's our sexist. He's our crook. And he's going through. He's he's so compromised that he made a Faustian bargain. And he's carrying through this agenda. We're getting all these uh, identity politics appointments. We're watering down crime. We're trying to cut back on gas and oil we kind of got rid of rid of the toxic masculine image abroad when we fled Afghanistan he's been delivering man we got an open border we got 7 million new Americans. that's how they look at him that his, yeah. his and they you in, in a weird way i think everybody understands you can't criticize him yeah. because he's not responsible for what he says in other words, yeah. it's like your great-grandfather, your great-uncle, or you're a, a member of your family who's suffering from Alzheimer's. You just don't make fun of them. And when they say something stupid, you just say, hmm, so it's, that's okay. That's
1: Yeah, yeah. but there's a law out there. You don't become president of the United States if you want that kind of sympathy. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, you, <laughs> you can
2: become, give him that. <laughs> you don't become senator from Pennsylvania either?
1: Exactly. And yes. you're not
2: an 89-year-old senator from California that can't remember? Yep. No, it's called, <laughs> we don't care whether you're anything, all you have to do is be physically in the Senate or in the White House, and when somebody takes their, like that old Star Trek episode, mm-hmm. puts your hand to sign or to vote, that's all that matters. Yep. And so I think yeah. everybody should realize that, I don't. I'm just not spouting off. Really, I'm sincerely. I, I mean this. The left is does not care about racism. It does not care about sexism. It exhibits daily racist and sexist attitudes. It care or ableism or ageism. Any of those isms. All it cares about is power. 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 Power and the welfare of the bi-coastal elite classes of all different identity politics groups. And therefore, if, if Joe Biden's diary says he took a shower with his daughter, or his son is a crackhead and manipulating women and vice versa on, uh, on, on the laptop, or if he can't keep his hands off pre-teenage girls, Or if he says some things that are eerily and spooky and creepy, it doesn't matter. He's useful. And that's how it is.
1: Yeah, that's very sad. Well, Victor, we better take a break here and come back to talk about Alexander the Great. This is our weekend episode, and we like to do a little history. So stick with us, and we'll be back to talk about Alexander the Great. Welcome back, Victor. So to change the subject completely, although I, that was a fascinating discussion that flowed from Merrick and Ray into Joe Biden in his speech. So really loved it. But um, to get on to Alexander the Great, he's our next um, well conqueror and has the impact on the West that we're looking at after the Peloponnesian War. So um, wh- I'll go with what you want to talk about, and then if I have Over some tree. questions, I'll insert. It.
2: Yeah, we're trying to just go through history, and we're going to try to do this for maybe a year. We'd started with the Persian Wars. We did the Peloponnesian Wars. And now I'd like to talk about, just for 10 minutes, Alexander the Great. So everybody knows Alexander Magnus, the famous conqueror and destroyer of the Persian Empire. And there's a lot of false knowledge about him. He died at uh, the age of 33. Basically, he was uh in power from the death of his father who was assassinated philip ii and he inherited the macedonian kingdom that's north of greece uh when he was 20 turning 21. he had fought at the battle of Chaeronea in 338 with his father he was 18 years old and he led the cavalry charge on the left wing that broke the theban sacred band so he was he was very precocious, but he was on the outs because in the Macedonian uh, marriage protocols, his father had remarried a young girl and, he, and she had had a baby and he was going to be out. So he was, I don't know whether he was involved. There's a lot of speculation he was involved in the assassination of Philip II. But everybody's would like to know how did this little backward place in, in Northern Greece, I don't know, had wealth, Pella and Regina and all these. Macedonian cities, but it was tribal. It was in the outback of Greece. A Greek in in the city states, I think, would find uh, Macedonian as someone at Oxford would try to understand somebody from the Bronx or from Alabama. You know what I mean? They not only would not able to find that follow the dialect, but they would look down on it. Yeah. And so, out of that. And how did Philip do it in 20 years? That is, do it meaning conquer the Greek city-states. And the reason is he he refashioned the Greek phalanx. He had been a hostage as a young boy in Thebes, and he had learned from the great strategist Epaminondas of Thebes. But what he did was, was brilliant. He took the hoplite spear of nine feet and he lengthened it to 16 feet, called it a sarissa. Instead of a you know a pike rather than a spear, but that required two hands, and then a lot of weird things happen from that fact. He, if you have two hands, you can't carry a shield. If you can't carry, and you're a mercenary soldier for the most part, because you're not going to be heavily protected with all that weight, as citizen soldiers whose life was much more dear to the to the militias and the and the city state. So he has these professional pikemen, and it, they're very heavy. So you need two hands. They put a little thing, I think it's in Greek, it's called a pericardion. It's a little plate around your heart. And they were trained uh, day and night as professional troops, unlike Greek hoplites that were militias, I said. And notice that if you're in a phalanx and you have 16 feet, you have nearly double the killing uh, zone of a hoplite. So in a a hoplite 8 feet Eight men deep, you only can hit, the only the first three rows can hit the enemy. The rows, we don't really know what rows four to eight were, but they were either to push, and the word in Greek is off these moths, and give greater propulsion to the phalanx, or they would stop the craven from backing out, or they would step up as reinforcements, or they would, like a Napoleonic column, they would be eerie and project power. But he doubled that. From eight to sixteen, and so if you were facing a Macedonian, there were forty more points in your face because row one, two, three, four, five could reach you in the initial clash, and then he made cavalry, which had been kind of a construct in Greek Greek warfare because you know it's hot in the Peloponnese and central Greece, Attica, they're very expensive to to have grazing land or. You have to have well watered land for a horse. But up in Macedonia, it's much colder. It's wetter. And he had what he called the companion heavy cavalry. Heavy cavalry means that they didn't just throw a javelin or were equipped with a sword, but they too had a servissa. And so he, he fashioned this military machine like a symphony. So there was the pikemen and then there were two boxing gloves on either side, uh, the companion cavalry. And then behind the phalanx, he had missile troops and javelin throwers. So when he saw an enemy, he had a pre, he had a preconceived point where they would pour in uh, javelins, uh, archery, light cavalry might come up, and if they sensed an opening, then the two boxing gloves would come around and try to box in and get behind the phalanx. And then whatever fissure had grown, they would send in the Macedonian pikemen and tear it apart. And it was just devastating. So when they took over Greece in 338, then Philips dies and Alexander liquidates all of the rival. And he's king. And the first thing he does is there's an insurrection. He goes down to the historic, iconic city of Thebes and he says give up and they said oh we don't do that in greek warfare we'll kind of hold out and we'll no i mean give up or i'm going to liquidate you and he said no we don't do that so what does he do and he has a siege he kills 6000 6000 Thebans and then he levels the entire city levels it to the ground and enslaves everybody there and it ceases to exist i mean there's archaeological remains from Mycenae this is the city of Oedipus. Antigone. It's out. And then he goes over to Europe and he says, okay, I don't want any more revolution in my back. I'm going over to pay the Persians back for centuries of aggression. I want to loot the, the Persian Empire. So in a series of four climatic battles and two great sieges, in the space of about five years, he destroys the Persian Empire. At Granicus, when he crosses the Aegean, he crosses the the Hellespont. He defeats a Persian army. He meets the king himself the next year at the Battle of Isis two years later at 331 up in Guagamela, which is, uh, you can go there today in Iraq. I went there. It's Arbella, Erbel. He destroyed uh, the huge army of the Persian Empire. That was the third battle. And at that point, the Persian hierarchy flees. And the entire empire is crumbling. On the way in this circular route into the Middle East, he goes into Tyre. And everybody thought that city, Tyrrhenian, we get uh, this Phoenician city was impregnable. And he builds a mole and he takes it and he just wipes out everybody. does the same thing with Gaza. Gaza. In this period of four battles, he kills over 200,000 Persians in battle, and he kills over 40,000 Greeks, and he probably kills another 100,000. And then it gets interesting because as the empire crumbles, it reverts to its pre-imperial status with local chieftains and strongmen. So he goes into Bactria, which is modern-day Afghanistan. And it doesn't work too well there, as it never works for anybody. He has at the Battle of the Hydaspes. He fights Poros, the Indian lord. And uh, he defeats him. He never lost a pitch battle. He never quit a siege. But in Afghanistan, it was a dirty war. And he lost a lot of soldiers. And he just started wiping people out. It was... Uh, A Carthaginian peace. And so, in this decade, he has destroyed the Persian Empire and all of these treasuries. It was not a market economy. They were taxed, all the provinces. I mean, the Persian Empire went from Egypt all the way up to Scythia and all the way from the Persian Gulf to uh, Thrace. So, it was the largest empire in the world. And at places like uh, modern-day Baghdad or Ekbata or Susa, uh, Babylon is modern-day Baghdad, there were these huge treasuries of stored coins and raw bullion. And once he looted these things, there was a whole trail of Greek scientists and merchants and geographers and military people, and they followed in his wake and it just created an entire inflated economy, monetary economy. And then Greeks that had opposed him flocked to him. And then at the age of 33, he died probably from either an old wound or from alcoholism or from malaria. But before he died, he took this wonderful army back from Afghanistan. Uh, Punjab border and he went all the way through the Gadrosian desert and almost ruined the army. But right. What I'm getting at is uh, he was a very brilliant propagandist because when we were doing all of this, we, he was doing all of this, destroying the Greek city-states in the sense of there's no more freedom really after Alexander and destroying the Persian Empire. He, does, he did it all for us. He used this word ecumenical, waikomene in Greek and he said, I'm doing this for the brotherhood of man. I'm going to have all of my soldiers marry Iranian women. I'm going to bring the races together. Uh, and if it's going to be wonderful. But if you don't like it, I'm going to kill you. And a lot of people didn't like it. So he murdered Philotus, he close friend. He murdered Clytus, close friend. He even murdered Parmenio. He he wiped out almost everybody, and uh, he got paranoid. And so today, one of the problems is we don't have a Herodotus or a Thucydides or Xenophon chronicling all this, and there is two traditions that survive uh, that survive uh, into extant historian. So if you want to read about all this, you have to read either Plutarch's Life of Alexander. Or you have to read a much later uh, historian in the clerarchus, who's in fragmentary. Fragmentary, or you've got to read uh, what exists of the diaries of uh, Ptolemy. But what i and that they are more mostly not all, but in the the famous uh, account of Arian, and there's a good and a bad tradition, obviously whether and. You know, he, he murdered the uh, philosopher Callisthenes, who was in the bad tradition, and Parmenio is more or less in the good. And so when you read Arian or Diodorus or Plutarch or Curtius Rufus, those are the four main sources, Curtius, as I said, Alexander, Plutarch, and Arian, you get very different views of him. And today, it's split. And so, mm-hmm. I, I'll give you an example of what I in. I wrote an article once in uh, 1998. It was called Alexander the Killer. The Killer. And yeah. so, it was for the Military History Quarterly. It was a very wonderful journal by Robert uh, Cowley that he had created. And um, I said, let's just count up the people who he killed. So, uh, as I did just now, I went through all the pitch battles, all the sieges, and all of the murders and... Uh, kind of genocides that he did after he burned down uh, Babylon and Persepolis. I shouldn't say burned down Babylon. He looted it and he burned down Persepolis. And it's in the many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And, he lo- and the whole point was he went there to loot that kingdom and to get fabulously rich with a bunch of about 20,000 hardcore aristocratic uh, Macedonians and when he died they wanted to know what to do with it all he said to the strongest and so you had seleucus and you had ptolemy and you had antigonus and adela and they just fought for 20 years until they carved out the seleucid empire and with antipater and cassander then there was a macedonian empire in greece and there was the ptolemies but uh it was kind of a mess but it was the beginning of what we call the hellenistic world it was greek-like but it didn't have the values of greece but they spoke greek they had greek science they had a lot of money after uh looting the east and it's the first you know it's the second iteration of east west after the persian wars then this is alexander's payback but when i wrote that article and you know i could not believe the reaction sammy
1: Why? Did they not like to hear Oh, I had
2: people from the Greek government. How dare you? I had people I've known my whole life said, oh, you serious. There was a uh, professor, I'll be blunt about it. Uh, He's now passed away. I liked him a great deal. Harry Costis, he was a Cal State University business professor, but he was also a Phil Helene and we were very close and uh, he had, he used to ask me for some favors about when I was in the Department of Foreign Languages. I think he wanted somebody to take a foreign language exam in Modern Greek, which we didn't offer. And I didn't speak very well, but I was willing to give the exam so this person could get out of the foreign language. I did stuff like that. We were good. When I wrote that, he went ballistic. Oh, he no. wrote letters to the Fresno B. Every time I saw him, he would come up to me and start yelling at the top of his voice. After mm-hmm. he passed away, members of his family continued to attack me for 20 years. They wrote letters to the paper. Yeah. How dare you say anything about Alexander the Great? Part of it was that with the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, a Serbian element, the Kosovar, near, not the Kosovar, but in Macedonia, and that was the eastern part of the ancient Macedonia, they declared their autonomy. And even though they were not Hellenic speaking and not Hellenic people, they declared themselves Macedonian. And that was the same name as the northern province of modern Greece, Macedon Macedonia. And there was a horrible fight about that. How dare these people expropriate our legacy? But it was very funny because when I was in Greece in 73 during the dictatorship nobody every when you mentioned Macedonia and Alegr- it was kind of like well you know they're kind of Greek but they weren't really Greek they didn't yeah. really speak Greek they didn't they didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes like we do all of these weird uh, ethnic arguments and then of course uh, they found the imperial trove at Vergina in 1972. Is 1973, four, and they were spectacular. The royal archi- the royal burials and archives, perhaps even Philip II, at Pella and Vergina, and that and it became world famous. It was so impressive. The treasure trove, and everybody, you know, at the Getty and all the major uh, museums of the world had tours. The gold of Alex searching for Alexander the Great. Books came out, biographies, and all of a sudden, the the government in Athens changed their view entirely. All of a sudden, he was as Greek as Greek could be, and Macedon was part of Greece always, and they were in. There was no difference between Macedonians. And how dare these former Serbian people, uh, Yugoslavian people dare expropriate our cultural legacy? It got to the EU point where one of the conditions of admitting, uh, Macedonia to the EU, they had to distinguish themselves from the Greek state of Macedon. But it just, it just shows you how controversial he was, much more so than assessments of even Caesar or Napoleon. Yeah. And so when I I, I, uh, but when I actually counted up and this I wasn't doing it. And I I remember in the article, I haven't read it in years, but I did say I don't approve of applying the standards of the present to condemn people in the past. But that being said, there are moral standards that trans, you know,
1: transcend space and time. Yeah, That
2: transcend space and time. So given The morals of the time was slaughtering every Greek citizen in Thebes who gave up, uh, 8,000 of them, and then enslaving 30,000 and then taking all their land and destroying the city and farming it out to the rest of the Boeotians or killing everybody in Gaza or killing everybody in Tyre are wiping out 40,000 Greek mercenaries, for either putting them in chains and selling them into slavery or killing them right there on the battlefield or wiping out whole cities in Bactria. I mean, that was beyond the pale. The Greeks had never seen anything like that. When they, When the Thebans revolted against Alexander the Great, it was like, okay, We're going to make a point. Hey, everybody. Hey, Athens. Demosthenes is going to help us. Hey, Sparta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is great. You guys almost beat the Macedonians. And then all of a sudden he comes down and, you know, in seven days, he comes all the way down from Northern Macedon and the Spartans and the Corinthians and the Athenians said, not me. I'm not getting into this. This guy is, this young guy is a psychopath and I don't want anything to do with it. And so he gives them terms and then, he basically says, Oh, I lost 500 of my best soldiers trying to take your city. So I'm going to wipe out all the males and enslave all the women and children and then level it. But you know what? Because I'm such a intellectual and lover of the arts, I'm going to save the house of the poet Pindar. So that's what he did. <laughs>
1: wow you know you i was i had a whole bunch of questions and you've answered a lot of them but um one of them was and you've kind of touched on it but i was wondering maybe directly what do you think inspired him to go on this rampage of conquest i mean you just said you know somebody might look at him and say i'm not gonna you know confront this psychopath but do you think he was what what do you think it was? I mean, it, it's kind of fascinating because you could ask it the is. same question well, about you, George Patton or yeah, Steve Jobs or any of these people that just well, like go Well, if you read home. the
2: good tradition and you can find elements of uh, Ptolemy and Cridobolus, these are lost authors and they survive again in Arian and Curtius, Plutarch and Diodorus and they are emphasizing very famous histories the most famous history was ww w. tarn alexander the great uh written in the early 20th century and then a, a very brilliant german scholar that's been translated Wilken, history of alexander the great uh he was a romantic, and he thought you know what let's heal the wounds so i will go over there and i will liberate people from autocratic backward Persian monarchy, and I will give them Hellenism. And then I will take the Greeks and the Persians and meld them into one globalized vision." It was very globalist. Cosmopolitan mm-hmm. was a word that he used, for, you know, the city of the world. And mm-hmm. he had a, a inscription that he put up about the brotherhood of man. We're all going to have the same gods. We're going to marry. We're going to be interracial. That's if you believe the good tradition. If yeah, you okay. believe the more negative contemporary tradition that also survives in these extant four authors. And by the way, they're much later. They're from the Roman period. So you are you got a 300-year hiatus of actual contemporary accounts. Then he was a thug. And he, under the guise of uniting, conquering all the Greeks. He did. 1,500 city-states he conquered in three years. But he he created something that his father had done, the League of Corinth. that was a puppet, kind of like a Hitlerian group, you know, during the Occupy, a Vichy group, I should say. And he said, don't get mad at me. I'm going to make you richer than you've ever been. I need you to come over in my crusade. Now, a lot, as I said, said, screw you. I'm going to go there and fight against you to free my... My city, state, back home, and there were forty thousand Greeks that, that went over there. I could say something that would be infuriate Hellenes and I'm a Philhellen. He killed more Greeks than the Greeks did in this period. Well, wow. I mean, all the interstate. I'll put it even more. He probably killed more Greeks than all the Greeks that died in the Peloponnesian War. Mm. And so he was, but I think. The true I don't think his father was going to do that. I think his father was going to go along the coast of what is now Turkey and go from, you know, basically Byzantium all the way down to Bodrum, Halachnarsus. And that was the wealthiest part. It's ancient Ionia. And there were cities like Pergamon and Priene. He was going to loot them. Ephesus. Uh, Miletus, just loot them and free them and say, I'm the brotherhood of Greece and I I want a lot of money. They were very wealthy. But Alexander had this much more ambitious idea of, uh, and the amount of coin, gold and silver that he brought into the Hellenic world is staggering. Mm -hmm. So you can see it when you look at Hellenistic temples or the temple of Olympian Zeus at Athens or the the temple of Apollo at Didyma. It, uh, if anybody ever goes to Turkey, it's kind of worth that. Hard to get temp- temple Didyma. I mean, they're huge. They're at a magnitude you cannot believe. They're so lavish. I, I think I have still have a picture where I'm I'm standing between the flutes, the flutes. I should say the fillets because they're Ionic order in Didyma. It's so it, massive, the column circumference, and yeah. so there was just a level staggering level of wealth that was unleashed that had been locked up in these um, treasuries the persian idea of economics is you suck up the money from the countryside or the tribute and then you hoard it and then you're the only one that has power because you have all the gold and silver well the hellenic idea was no you coin it and you make a inflation inflationary booming economy and there's no doubt about it that there a level of wealth just really ensued from his conquest, even though he yeah. destroyed it because he destroyed a, a backward economy or at least a wealthy hierarchy that had a backward economic way of thinking, which most people in the ancient world did. But what I'm getting at just to finish is that uh, it tends to be the American view um that's skeptical of the brotherhood of man. I did it all to for a utopian enterprise. It's more that I got a great army from my father. He created it. And it took him 20 years to conquer Greece, but he conquered it. And then I inherited it. I inherited the army. I inherited the generals. I inherited Greece from him. And his next step was to go loot Asia Minor. And he came close to dying at the Granicus and at ISIS. So it wasn't it was a near run thing, but once he those first two battles, he destroyed the Persian army and then at Guagamela he and he ended it. I should say he weakened it and then ended then it was all up for grabs and he went you know, megalomaniac. Yeah. And so the Americans, there was a scholar at Harvard, everybody's listening probably who knows something about Alexander, know, Ernst Badian, uh, he wrote a series. He didn't write the great biography we all thought he was going to do. And uh, I spoke at Harvard a couple of times. He was in the audience. He was very critical, by the way. I remember I was speaking on the other Greeks, and he didn't like the idea of studying agrarianism in the ancient world. But he wrote some very skeptical articles about Alexander the Great, saying he was ruthless and self-centered, selfish, murderous. And yeah. then Peter Green, whom I've also, anybody wants to go read Who Killed Homer? Um, the Oh, the reply to Who Killed Homer? I wrote with John Heath, I think a 5,000-word rebuttal to him that he attacked our book. But he did write a history of Alexander the Great that was very critical as well. Yeah. And then there was a very scholarly edition by a man named Bosworth in Britain, and it was, it basically summed up his career as one of rapine, wreckage, and death. Yeah, there's been other things that you know that there's been. A, it's kind of like Napoleon. It's a it's a whole industry that he's an alcohol. He was an alcoholic. That he was insane. He was bipolar. Who knows? Yeah. Uh,
1: what were what were his particular talents on the battlefield or in command? Do you
2: quick you- Caesarian Caesarian toss. So. He could look at a battlefield and he was always outnumbered. He never brought to the battlefield more than 35 or 40,000 people at most. Maybe 18 at Gran- Granicus, but the enemy usually had 60 to 70 to 80,000. He was wow. sometimes two to one, but he would look at the battlefield. And then he had these old guys that were his dad's masters, people like Antimachus and Antip- Antipater and Arminio, especially. And he'd get together and he'd look at the battlefield and say, there is the weak, there is the king, usually in the middle and the back. And we've got to open a fissure where I, where we can get to him. So I'm going to saturate that point with, ja- with artillery I, in the sense of javelin throwers or send the light cavalry, send the archers, the javelin. And then once that fissure gets up, I'm going to widen it, but I'm going to take the... Heavy cavalry, 2,500 men maybe on each side, and they had armor, armor breastplates, and shorter pikes, javelins, excuse me, spears, and they went around the, blasted through the Persian cavalry, which were lighter, they had kind of wicker shields, and and they didn't have the same type of metallic breast, and they just plowed right through them, and they were not heavy. Heavy cavalry in the ancient world is you have a spear rather than javelin, basically, and armor and he got to the back of the persian army and he would have been wiped out because it was 2500 and men admit thousands and at that critical point the signal was given for the macedonian phalanx to advance loxane that's a greek word for obliquely and they would just go right to a particular point and blast it wide open. And then he would be in the back and widen it and try to kill the king or drive him off the field. So Mm. I guess what I'm saying is 50 to 60% of the Persian army never engaged. It was so quick. And you didn't want, I mean, there had to be, in any given battle, there's about 10,000 Persians that they centered on you. You're going to be dead. And the question is, would you hold out long enough so that the other people could regroup or reformulate and outnumber him? And the answer was always no. It was so quick. And he yeah. he led, he, I mean, he was amazingly brave. He led every charge himself. He was almost killed. You can really see that famous, It's it was a famous painting, and most Greek paintings have, have been lost, um, but they survived in the Roman era. That one at Pompeii where there's, Uh, Darius and his chariot, remember that mosaic? It's a mosaic. mosaic Yeah, Yeah. and Alexander's trying to get close to him. Yeah. He he never killed. He was executed by a disloyal Persian um, subordinate, which Alexander, you know, got very angry about. But anyway, he's a romantic figure for a lot of people that have, that believe the saga that he was um, an ecumenicalist, globalist and it was all for the brotherhood of man. I tend to be a little bit more cynical and counted the bodies.
1: Yeah. Well, Victor, we better take a break and come back for our last uh, segment here. And we're gonna look at the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. Stay with us and we'll be back.
0: There's something magical about unboxing.
1: Welcome back, Uh, Victor. So it's almost the 30th anniversary of the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. And I was wondering if you had some reflections on our war on terrorism. We don't really hear too much about it these days. So I was wondering if you had anything to reflect on on that.
2: Well, remember that 93 bombing was designed... Uh, to do what happened in two thousand and one, it was in the parking lot as I remember the garage and uh, it did some damage but not very much damage it didn't take down the building and they they realized very quickly the way that the the way not to take those buildings down was not from the bottom it was from mid level the way they were built remember mm-hmm. they weren't structurally built like the Empire State building they were built kind of like a a large corridor, vertical corridor with cement slabs for each floor, but without internal uh, reinforcement. In other words, once one started to fall where it was hit and the girder started to melt, then it would fall down to the next one and add weight to the next one. Then you had three floors on one, then four floors on one, and then it would just collapse. They didn't know that, but they knew that you couldn't do that again. Because it did fail. But the point, uh, Andrew McCarthy um, from National Review now was a federal attorney then. Remember, he prosecuted the so-called blind sheik, who's now, I think he died about five years ago. But he was the architect of it. And then Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was kind of the architect of later, you know, he was the one that supposedly was going to have, I don't know, eight or nine, uh, nine, 9-11s all at once all over the world involving Americans but he was also an architect of 9-11 he didn't participate directly in it but he was in Guantanamo I don't know if he's still in Guantanamo or not And then there was Ramsey Yusuf who was actually one of the perpetrators and we found them and one of the things that was strange about it is that when um, it was really the first assault on the American homeland in force and we didn't we kind of you know I guess the attitude was, well, if they if they can't even do this, they did they had a free hand, they did it, and our buildings are invulnerable. They're not going to be able to do it. We didn't take it seriously. It was you know, it was during the uh, the Clinton administration had just come into power, and they had a different idea about terrorism. Remember, when they were offered bin Laden um, and they didn't take him. And then in addition to that, it came, it popped up later during the two thousand, uh, ten years later, the discussion about whether to go into Iraq or not. Everybody thinks it was, uh, weapons of mass destruction. That was what the Bush administration unfortunately and unwisely emphasized. And I, I had a meeting once. I was at the naval. Academy teaching. They brought some historians in to talk to members of the administration. I can't disclose it, but I, I would just say that when it came to me, I suggested very politely because there were some very powerful people there. There were 23 writs that the United Nations had given on a platter to the United States. You know, excuse me, the U.S. Congress. They had been also delivered to the United Nations. The United Nations had not approve them because of Mr. Villapon. But the point I'm getting at is the U.S. Congress, Democrats and Republicans, had ratified the use of authorized, the use of force against Saddam. And they gave 23 reasons why. And WMD was only one or maybe two reasons. It was all there. They had violated the no-fly zone. They had practiced genocide against the Kurds. They had murdered and destroyed the culture of the Marsh Arabs. They had given bounties to suicide bombers uh, on the West Bank. And one of them was they were harboring world terrorists. Abu Nadal, remember that name? He was the bin Laden of an earlier generation. But also, there had been people involved in the first world trades that that had fled and so one of the writs, why we were going to supposedly clean house after 9-11, we were going to get the guy, all the people who did the 93 bombing. And so I think everybody, if you just go online sometime, look at uh, U.S. Congress authorization of force to use against Iraq. And I think you'll be surprised how many reasons they had, uh, the violating U.N. sanctions, U.N. charters, etc. etc. They were all there and and I don't know why they did that, but uh when Colin Powell went to the United Nations, remember and he just it wasn't a very good presentation, I didn't think. And then uh they they kept talking about WMD, WMD, WMD and in that enter that period between say October of two thousand two and the actual invasion in March of two thousand three he had plenty of time if there were the levels, the arsenal and the depot of WMD to truck it to Syria, which some people claim actually he did do. I don't know if he did or not. But the point I'm making is, had the Bush administration just said, look, 9-11 has changed the world and... We want to go through the, we want to do this legitimately and legally and lawfully, but Saddam Hussein is harboring most of the world's terrorists. He's sponsoring terrorism on the West Bank. He's giving bounties. He's committed genocide. He's broken all of the armistice agreements of the 91 war. He's violated UN sanctions. He's violated UN rules about no fly zones. He's harboring Ameri- uh, people who have murdered Americans. And he's been offered, uh, he's been threatened to g- that he has to give these things that he will not comply. So we are going to take him out. We're not going to rebuild the country. We're not going to stay there for 10 years. We're just going to go in and we're going to take him out. And we'll hope something better falls. But if it doesn't, that's what, I think they would have been all right. But instead, they they didn't they ignored the 23, including the 93 World bomb, bombing, and they just fixated It was WMD 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 WMD, and we finally got to that ridiculous thing where Colin Powell had metal cylinders, and we were supposed to think that um, there was going to be a bomb developed. Of course, we knew that that wasn't true because during the Iran Iraq War of, of uh, 19 was it 1980. Israel took out Saddam's reactor but he was supposedly trying to get it or Libya was trying to get it but it was just too bad that they just got crazy and when people say bush lied thousand died he was he didn't lie about wmd he just listened to the intelligence or the intelligence listened to him in a circular fashion and they just said you know oh yeah it's a slam dunk cia yeah. said that but if he just had just forgot WMD, if he had even said, we think he's got gas because we know that he's gassed the Kurds. He did that after the 91 war. We know that those depots are still there, but it doesn't pose an existential threat to the United States, at least in terms of weapons of mass destruction. But he does pose a threat to the entire idea of the post-war order, and he will go into Kuwait again, like he he's attacked Iran, he's attacked Kuwait, he's attacked Americans, his people that he's now harboring have attacked us in the 90s, and and then listed all of the things that Congress, yeah, said. I mean, there were there were a lot of liberal Democrats, and there was a majority of Democrats, I think, in in the House that voted for it. Maybe not the Senate, but a lot of Democrats did vote for it. But not a majority of democrats yeah it was overwhelming in the house and uh it was so funny to see them all go on record so many of them go on record to authorize the war and then when they took the statue down in three weeks in that brilliant campaign you do you remember they were all on tv saying i authorize this war i i I kind (laughs) of showed that the democratic party can be tough on terrorism and it's for strong offense and i we were very fundamental in giving George Bush the tools that he needed. And then by July, when we didn't put down the insurrection, it was, I didn't want to, I, you know, they were, I was misled. He lied. He lied. He's a liar. I, 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 I voted because we were in danger of WMD. And I thought, no, you didn't. You voted <laughs> on 23 reasons. Don't lie to us. That's, that's crazy. That destroyed yeah. the Republican party in the 2006 midterm. Yeah, And then it, it gave us Barack Obama.
1: Do you think that we don't hear too much about the, um, you know, we're just not, there's no stories, et cetera, about war on terrorism, Middle East, et cetera, Today. because in the last decade, our our military took out a lot of the heads of those uh, cells and that's that kind the of great,
2: thing. That is the great unknown. That's non-spoken. I was embedded twice in the Iraq war, I went over in 2006 with a group of people, it wasn't really embedded. We were in a Black Hawk helicopter that flew over the battlefields, uh, battle zones, you know. But then I went back in 2007 and I was in Humvee and went on a tour with HR McMaster and his group that was assessing the surge. And I talked to a lot of people and I mean, we went to a lot of really kind of hairy places. And there was combat, but one of the things I wanted to ask was, I, I, and I asked colonels and lieutenant colonels and generals. I met everybody. I, I talked to David Petraeus. I talked to uh, most of the people there. And what I was curious of is the surge, the surge, the surge. Did thir- I just didn't believe that thirty thousand troops could change the entire complexion of you know what I mean of a, of a battlefield. So what I discovered, and I think most people who were over there discovered, is under the guise of sending 30,000 troops and under the guise of uh, building parks, you would go over there and then the, the military command would always want to say, look at this. We built a park in Baghdad. Or look at this. We we paved this road. Or I remember I went to a... Uh, a, generator, a big uh, generating plant, and I was told that the transformers and the electrical stuff was more sophisticated than in the United States. Think of that. And
1: wow. they were bragging
2: all the money, a trillion dollars we were spending. But under the cover of all that, they were killing people like they'd never killed them. I think Stanley McChrystal was in charge of a lot of killer teams. So then you'd talk to other people off the record. And they'd say yeah the surge helps yeah that's good yeah we're winning hearts and minds yeah fish have to swim in water so we're the fish we are changing the complexion of the water but don't believe all of that under all of that utopian rhetoric we just took the gloves off and we've got the names of almost every baathist and al-qaeda sympathizer, and we're just killing them we're killing them day and night wow. and then when we did that then it settled down so when obama came if you look at the deaths per year of Americans in 2009, it, it, it's less than the accident rate. So, and then he pulled out. I don't know why he came in. When he entered office, the war was won and there was a viable government. But he just yanked it out, and then the they just panicked. ISIS took over. But then Donald Trump, he didn't talk. He said, "I'm going to bomb the SHi." He did. He just they went right back and they just unloaded on ISIS from the air. And it was pretty tough. You talk to people that were over there and they just, they'll tell you that that they got the coordinates and they just blanket area bombed them. And wow. so, yeah, I think if you add 20 years in Afghanistan and you add um, the Iraq war, at least how it was conducted from 2000, late 2006 to 2008 and then you look at the Trump bombing attack on ISIS, I would say that they killed a lot of terrorists. And more importantly, they gave the sense that they didn't care. They would, they were willing to react. I can't answer the question whether all of that was worth, because we talked about Mark Moria. Mark Moria and I talked about that. same thing was true of Vietnam. It takes Americans a long time to know what they're doing, you know. And it took us from 2000 three until 2006 and seven to know what we were doing and we lost so many good people over there I don't know if the whole enterprise was worth it Uh, if you had it to do over you could probably have neutralized them with bombing attacks from you know missile cruise missiles but I don't know if getting rid of Saddam Hussein saved a lot of lives he was a murderous guy who'd probably killed a half a million people in his reign, whether they were Kurds or Marsh Arabs or people who were sent into Iran as cannon fodder. But anyway, um, I think that there's something to that. If that is yeah. true, you got to remember that the antithesis is true, too, that the last two years, we have basically crawled on our hands and knees over to Iran said, please, please, would you please, would you please let us get back into the Iran deal? I know that John Kerry broke our Logan Act, such as it is, and he's been talking to you during the Trump years, but he's, we're ready to give you what you want. And the Iranians looked at that and they said, these people would never kill many. These people want this deal so bad. And they said, screw you. And not only said, screw you, they said, you know what? We're going to kill Pompeo and we're going to kill Trump and we're going to kill members of the high command that were involved in that Soleimani assassination. To this day, uh, I think people like Mike Pompeo have over a million dollar cost of for security Mm because those threats are real. They've they've arrested people in Boston that were on assassination. So what I'm getting at is we lost deterrence. And when you go over to Israel and Trump had completely cut off the Palestinians. There was no terror. He had basically said to Israel, if they attack you, if they attack you, you take the gloves off and we're not going to give them a penny. And then he'd gone, you know, to the Arab world and said, you know what? Iran is your enemy. It's our enemy. It's Israel's enemy. And the Palestinians, they have you guys have a lot of money. Just give them the money and have something. But they're never going to destroy Israel and push it into the, yeah. from the river to the sea. That's crazy. And they and they it was all everybody agreed on that. And you know what? There was not very much terrorism whatsoever during the Trump period. And yeah. then when Biden came in, oh, let's give the four to eight hundred million whatever it was back to the Palestinians, and let's say that Israel is culpable. And you know what? Let's beg the Iranians to have a deal, and let's say that the Saudis are backward, horrible people. We don't want anything to do with them. And yet, at the same time we're going to do that, we're going to be really weak and say, please, please pump more oil. We have a midterm coming up. Gas is $5 a gallon. Can you get OPEC and you Saudis? And they had nothing but contempt for So it's a very dangerous period right now. And I mean, you look at the Afghanistan pullout, the way that was done, and yeah, I think we're going to be into another cycle of Islamic terrorism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Victor, we are at the end of the show and it's been, you know, we've gone much longer than, but I feel that you, our listeners and I all feel that it was all too short. So thank you very much for all your discussion, uh, Alexander, and also this last on the um, war on terror as it's going on. And we don't see it these days, but, but thanks. We very much appreciate it.
2: Well, I hope we covered a lot of territory. I think it's kind of good to mix history with contemporary affairs. Yeah. I know that some people don't want to hear about all the Great. Next time, um, yeah. we're going to talk about the Punic Wars. Uh,
1: yeah. Sounds good.
2: Three, three, yeah, two Punic Wars and the third is a siege. And yeah. I am going to, I'm eat, still drinking my Elevate water. I think you should all try it. I'm not giving a yeah. plug. But that's what keeps, but, keeps me but going. The,
1: the website is drinkelevate.com so anybody can go to even, that
2: i really like it i really do i, I have, i've never had water i have a problem with no moisture in my mouth dryness
1: yeah
2: i a uh, histamine problem but man it really is something that gives me energy yeah. and and lubricates your mouth so oh, and, talk, talk like a motor mouth
1: and two other things i think your listeners would be interested in is we just or you just did an interview with Mark Moyer on Vietnam and that was uh yes. Friday, your Friday show. And you are gonna do a follow-up interview with Dr. Quay on COVID. I right? am everybody
2: we had a lot of requests yeah. for that because if you remember that, Stephen Quay, when it was very unpopular, it even suggests he he went into detail to our listeners about the genetic sequence. And he said some things that were quite extraordinary that the chances were in the many millions that that exact very infectious very effective uh virus could have been naturally occurring and uh, really? he got a lot of static so he contacted me the other day and we're going to have him back on right away we also are going to have um cleta mitchell she was uh you've seen her on fox news she, she's been trying to rally republicans to be aware of electioneering and ballot fraud and she's She's been a crusader and she's going to be on. She's wonderful and she's, she knows inside and out how the left has tried to call people various names, smear them as a deterrent from them conducting a fair election, that we're supposed to be so afraid and so awed that they don't like us and they think that we don't want to be called names that go ahead and you don't need an ID, you don't, you know, that kind of stuff. She's an expert on the mentality of the left subversion. And finally, this uh, month, we're going to have Roger Kimball. You know him. He writes four or five columns a week. He's the editor of Encounter Books. He's the editor of The New Criterion. He's probably, he's the famous editor, uh, author, excuse me, of Tenured Radicals. It was the first expose of the left-wing takeover of the university. That was 30 years ago. So he's going to be wonderful. So we're going to have some good interviews coming up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much, Victor. And thanks to the audience for listening.
2: And we'll see you next time.
1: Yeah, this is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hanson, and we're signing off.